Hello and welcome to the seventh bonus episode of The Storyteller Murder Most Foul. I'm Isla Traquair. Obviously, you'll have to wait until the next main episode for the verdict. And as I said at the end, you never really know what a jury is thinking. And in Scotland, things get even more complicated because there are three possible verdicts and the decision does not need to be unanimous. So obviously there's guilty and not guilty. The third option available to the jury or judge if it's a non-jury trial is not proven, which means they're not convinced beyond reasonable doubt of the guilt of the accused, but it also means they're not convinced of their innocence. But the end result is the same as a not guilty in that they are acquitted. Juries in Scotland consist of 15 people and eight is the minimum requirement for a majority verdict and that is told to the court. So technically there are six variations of verdicts. Unanimous guilty, unanimous not guilty, unanimous not proven or majority of the same three. But only two of them lead to a conviction. Back to this case, imagine you are in my shoes, a journalist. You know the police officers, the pathologists, forensics, but you've not talked to them. You aren't allowed to approach them, and if you did, they wouldn't give you any information. So the only time we hear from the investigation team is through press conferences, statements, or an organised interview driven by them. So we, the press, have no idea what is going to emerge in court. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. And I've sat through many a trial when you're convinced of something early on and then the full picture emerges witness by witness and you can do a full 180. I had seen photos of Pamela Gurley as I'd interviewed her childhood friends for the backgrounder piece, but that still didn't prepare me for the moment that this 20-year-old, only four months older than me and about the same height, I'm five feet three and similar petite build, walked into the courtroom. She wore the same thing every day and you can see the photos on the podcast's Facebook, Instagram and Twitter pages. It was a black high neck jumper, black skirt, black tights and black shoes. She's got long reddy brown hair with a slight wave and a definite centre parting. No makeup and pale skin with the odd blemish. Former journalist Alison Shaw and I recall the day that we first saw Pamela Gurley in the flesh. What did it feel like the first time you set eyes on her? And when would that have been? Oh, that must have been um, the first day of our trial because all the other um, appearances would have been held in camera. They were all in private, so you don't get to see anybody. She would have been the sort of person you would have just walked past in the street and not looked twice at, really. Um, For forgettable in a way really nothing striking to look at long hair just a very average looking young woman but with a with a blank look on her face you know but that's in retrospect you know when you're seeing her seeing her sitting in the dock she was utterly without emotion the entire time and that was fairly horrifying too the only time I ever recall any sort of hint of emotion was probably self-pity actually um, when she wept when she was explaining that yeah it was her that had done it after all. And that was the police interview that was? Yes well there was the police interview and then there was a a telephone call with her mother and uh, she was upset uh, in that but as I say, I think that emotion was more focused on herself than what she'd actually done. 
my recollection is exactly the same and that was a thing that always I was just like emotionless cold mm -hmm. absolutely cold yeah and it has crossed my mind did she put herself in some sort of meditative state of numbness or but no like you, you you couldn't you couldn't not listen to and I think she, it was important for her to pay attention to what was being said obviously for her solicitors if there was anything that she would have disagreed with or, or whatever but I don't remember her stepping in and saying anything or motioning or you know, mm -hmm. handing them notes or anything like that. I don't recall anything like that. Her solicitor Shane Campbell confirmed there was little or no interaction prompted by her Certainly not like you might see on TV or in the movies when an accused is regularly whispering or passing notes to their defence team. They did, however, discuss the surprise witnesses who came forward during the trial, claiming to have information about Chris. What was Gurley's demeanour like during the trial? Fairly cold, fairly emotionless. Um, uh, when we would consult with her uh, in the court cells uh, and when I would speak to her even in court when she was in the dock, um, you know, she was fairly, fairly calm, fairly, I wouldn't say nonplussed, uh, but she seemed reasonably relaxed about what was going on. Um, at no point was she, for example, distressed or weeping in that way that she had been when I had very, you know, seen her for the very first time back in October. Um, I, yeah. think, I think the only time she shed a tear was when her mum had to give evidence, and that was with yeah. regard to the, um, the phone call. Yes. So there wasn't really any discussions with her about this is going well, this is not going well, or we've got this witness coming up, this is good news. There was... Yeah, she would have been advised, yeah. I mean, you know, we have a duty and an obligation to keep her advised as to what is happening. So certainly, as soon as these two individuals have come forward, then she would have been alerted to that uh, fact immediately. We would have discussed it with her and we would have said, look, in our view, there's absolutely no point in calling the first individual for the reasons that I've touched upon. Uh, and she would, you know, have accepted that. If she had told us, no, I want him called, and if she'd been quite adamant about that, then again, because of the relationship that I explained before, she being the principal, we being the agent, then we would have um, ultimately had to do that, even if it had been against our, our best advice. The shock new witness, Peter Cumming, who came forward mid-trial, was one of the few chances the defence team had to cast doubt on the Crown's case, and it was a gamble. Chris Taylor was a recovering heroin addict and he had been clean. But it seems the stress of the trial and being accused by Pamela and the defence team of being the killer pushed him over the edge. He was visibly different between the two appearances in the witness box and Mr Cummings said they'd been taking heroin. So he was recalled as a witness to respond to these allegations and denied them. So the second chance for the defence team to persuade the jury of Pamela's innocence was the blood spot. But perhaps the most important thing, or so it was hoped, was Pamela Gurley herself giving evidence. I'm back here at Aberdeen High Court and I'm in one of the defence agent interview rooms. But I'm not being interviewed as a witness. Opposite me I have QC Edward Turgoski. And it's been quite some time since we last saw it each has other, indeed. isn't it? It <laughs> has indeed, almost uh, over 20 years, I think. Yeah, yeah. yes, yeah. and you were in your robes and, That's right. and whatnot. So. That's right, and you were 
just starting off. Yes, yes. I, I, I'm not going to say cub reporter because I've been doing it a few years, but I was still pretty, um, pretty green, I would say, at that point for sure. Um, so you were obviously the QC um, for Pamela Gourley. That's um, right. And that was the, the trial in um, early 2000. And how did you go about deciding whether or not she should go into the witness box? Well, to me, that, that decision is really the most important decision that has to be made in a criminal trial. And I think that's where, um, dare I say it, the experience of whoever is um, mounting the defence comes to play. I think the client has to be told exactly what the Crown evidence is against her. Uh, how the evidence has developed in the course of the trial over uh, a number of days and just what uh, the client's position is at that moment in time. And I like to tell clients that it is entirely a matter for them whether they give evidence or not. I can advise them as to whether they should give evidence or not, but I can't make them. Nobody can make an accused person in Scotland go into the witness box and give evidence. So it was her decision then? As with all clients. Mm -hmm. At the end of that day of her giving evidence and being cross-examined, how did you... Did you have a feeling of how it went or...? (sighs) Not particularly. Um, She'd given her her evidence. That evidence was before the jury. Uh, we were moving then to the stage of the trial where we have uh, uh, speeches and I had to prepare my speech contrasting the Crown position with um, uh, Miss Gourley's position and um, it doesn't matter what I, I think about how she gave her evidence. I've had clients I thought gave terrible evidence uh, in the witness box, um, appalling evidence in the witness box which would I would have be certain would have led to conviction which have uh, resulted in acquittal. It's not what I think about how he or she behaves in the witness box that counts. Uh, it's very much how the ladies and gentlemen of the jury decide. Mm-hmm. And how much do you think, I know this is an impossible question to know for sure the answer of, but jury is obviously very, very clearly instructed to make a decision based on the evidence and beyond reasonable doubt. But how important do you think it is that they feel something for the accused? I think it's impossible to tell. I know research has been done in other jurisdictions uh, about how juries come to decisions and what they think. Um, it's, uh, it's impossible to tell uh, just why 15 people in a jury would acquit someone unanimously and it's almost impossible to tell why they would convict somebody unanimously. Um, People have people think that different um, different points in a case that have arisen are important. Some people think they're unimportant. There are I've had experience of cases where the colour of a cash book in a fraud trial, where imagine director said he couldn't remember it. Uh, apparently, one of the jury I heard later um, said that uh, the cash book was the most important thing in the office. He must be lying if he doesn't know the colour of the cash book and um, he'll be lying about everything else and that persuaded the jury round to a conviction. So it's impossible to tell. Um, You may look at uh, transcripts in a case, you may sit through a case, but unless you're in the jury room, you have no idea what is making up their mind. 
The trial went on for nine days, so as you can imagine, there was a lot of information and far too much for me to fit into this podcast. The transcript just for Pamela giving evidence is almost 150 pages long. So I've gone back through my old reports from the time, which I had to get from the library, as they're now all stored on microfilm. And I've picked out some of the key things that I didn't manage to fit into the main episode. It's worth pointing out that the reason I haven't interviewed the prosecutor in this case, which is Advocate Deputy Neil Brailsford, is because he is now a judge and not allowed to take part. So the Crown not only focused on the forensic evidence, but also Pamela's behaviour immediately after. She was claiming she was drugged up, but an hour after the murder, she was met by two police officers on the doorstep. Now, they happened to be there for a completely separate matter. It was an outstanding warrant for a previous tenant. Constable Rebecca Leddingham told the court that Pamela was plausible, pleasant, composed, controlled and helpful. Bear in mind, this conversation took place with Melanie's body lying just metres from them behind a closed door just at the end of the hall. And then about an hour after the police's visit, Pamela went shopping and had lunch with her mum and dad, during which time she withdrew the money from Melanie's account and used the voucher. It was actually Pamela's mum who helped police connect the dots between the CCTV and her daughter because she confirmed what clothes she was wearing that day. So I've got my report about that phone call from prison, which Alison and I discussed briefly in the main episode. But I'd like to read you some more because it's it's so telling that this is a mother who just doesn't want to. In fact, refuses to believe that her daughter was capable of murder. So Eileen Gourley was 42 at the time of the trial. And I note that she was sitting nervously while she was waiting to be questioned. I also say that she gave fleeting glances to her daughter who was sitting in the dock. So in this phone call, quite quickly, her mother asks her, Pamela, was it you or? And before she finishes, Pamela replies, it was me. The mum says, no, it wasn't Pam. Don't even go there. Don't even go there. I don't believe it. And don't even go there. Somebody's got to have helped you. And you'd better tell. Tell them, Pam. Please tell them, Pamela. She replies, they'll give me 15 years, mum. But Pam, you never done it. Somebody else did it with you. Now, who was it? Nobody. Mother says, Pam, that's not true. Don't even go there. I know you. I brought you into this world. So throughout this conversation, it's very repetitive of her mum saying, you didn't do it. And Pamela saying, yes, you did. She then goes on to the topic of drugs and says that you, you must have been sick with the tablets. And Pamela says, yes. And then they have a discussion about who gave her tablets. Was it Chris? Was it Claire? And, and Pamela's basically saying, look, just just leave it, mum. I, I, I asked for them. So even though Pamela is telling her mum to just drop it, her mother says, Pam, it doesn't matter. She got them and you never killed that woman. Somebody helped you. This is the point where Pamela says, hell. She says, I want to know who. Are you going to tell me? Pamela says, mum, nobody helped me. I don't know. I, I don't even know. She says, no, Pam, just don't even go there. I'm your mum, Pam, and I know you never done it. Pamela says, I'm so scared. So after the tape was played, Mrs Gurley told the court that she didn't trust her daughter's boyfriend, Chris Taylor, who she'd only met once. She said she'd asked her daughter during the phone conversation if Mr Taylor had been involved in the killing. Um, and then we heard more from the tape, which is, Pammy, I need to know, sweetheart. It's just for my mind and dad's, was it, Chris? And she says, no, I was drunk, drugged up. It was me. She says, no, Pam. And then again, she says, that, please tell tell her the truth. She says, I want you to tell that solicitor who helped you. And Pamela says, yes. 
Her mother says, because I've got to go and see him myself anyway to give him statements and I want you to tell him who helped you or else. Pamela says, yes, she says, okay, sweetheart. Pamela says, mum, I love you. She says, I love you too, my baby. I love you. I'm so sorry. And her mum says, no, no, no. If you do this for me, Pam, I'll be really chuffed. So chuffed is slang for being pleased with something. So she says again, tell him, tell him who helped you. I'll be chuffed. Pamela says it could be 15 years. She says, no, you might not, Pam. If you tell who helped you, you tell them who helped you. It won't be 15 years. Don't even go there. Pamela sighs. Her mum says, sweetheart, keep your chin up. She says, yes, and I'll have money for you tomorrow. She says, I'm only eating for you and dad. And her mother says, you have to eat, sweetheart. She said, yes, that's what every time I have a meal, I keep thinking about you and dad. And her mum says, listen here, you think about mum and dad when you tell them. And she agrees, yes. Pamela asks her mum to bring some pyjamas and slippers with her when she visits next. And she also asks for a ghetto blaster and photos of the family. And the conversation ends with, I love you, mum. So this conversation took place on October the 20th, the day after she was detained by the police. And she didn't give this new version of events involving Chris Taylor until February the next year. But of course, this is pretty damning evidence before a jury and it was uh, heard on tape as well. So when you're hearing the actual voices, just something, sadly, I'm not allowed access to these tapes. Otherwise, I'd be playing them to you. Um, But you can certainly get a sense there of a desperate situation between a mother and daughter. So I'm going to end this bonus episode there. However, I'm making another one. (laughs) A second bonus episode for episode seven. There's just so much to fit in here. So the next one, I'm going to read from the transcript of Pamela Gurley giving evidence. I'm not reading you all 150 pages, don't worry. But at least you've got an opportunity. Go and put the kettle on and sit down and get yourself ready for part two of the bonus episode. But thank you for listening. I'm Isla Traquair. I'm the writer, producer, editor of The Storyteller, Murder Most Foul. Thank you so much for all your support. And I pass that on from Melanie's family as well. It means a lot to them and I read Susan all the messages that you guys send in and if you like this podcast please please go on to iTunes and rate and review it does make a big difference and I really appreciate it and there's lots more information on social media that's on Facebook Instagram and Twitter